Good morning. It's a delight to be with you as uh, we launch into Christmas season. I know that you've all been thinking about Christmas and I'm sure been meditating on the birth of Christ. We're going to look at a, um, a historic kind of Advent passage this morning in Isaiah 40. Uh, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you all back here tomorrow night, Lord willing, for our Christmas Eve service. I'm looking forward to seeing all the little kids singing, and not only because I've got two of them there, but I guess I'm biased. What's your recipe for comfort over the holidays? What's your recipe for comfort? I imagine the longer your family tradition is, the more there is in that recipe. There's certain people of your family that need to be there. Maybe it includes a fireplace, a lit fireplace, even in Southern California. People still seem to have them. I'm not sure why. And there's days when it's a brisk 50. Uh, there's certain foods that stand out for you during Christmas, decorations, music, certain songs. Maybe you try to get all that going at just the right time, maybe with a scented candle, and you sit back in your recliner, and you're like... Ah, it's Christmas, and you feel the comfort ooze over you. A lot of energy can be spent going for a certain feeling. But we all know in a few days, the decorations will be put away. And for many of us, we will be reminded again by our ache for a deeper comfort, a lasting comfort, a true comfort, based on truth and not traditions based on facts and not feelings. We need comfort for when we look outward at the world, a world plagued by injustice, by ongoing wars, by tsunamis. Comfort for when you look in the mirror and you see the effects of age or even perhaps disease on your body. Comfort for when you look inward and you remember your guilt over sin, the weight of your offenses against God, the pain you've caused others by your choices. This morning we'll see from God's word that there is comfort to be had, but the comfort is only to be found in the advent, in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now there are many passages associated with Christmas, if you have a, a hymnal that has scripture readings, Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11 is one of those that get classically read during Christmas. And as I studied about Advent a little bit, it's because of that word Advent. Advent means arrival. And some of these passages look forward to Christ's arrival at his birth, and some of them look forward to his arrival at his second coming. And really, today's passage has both If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. The prophet Isaiah served as God's prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. This, this is after Israel was divided into northern and southern kingdom. The prophet Isaiah ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah for approximately 50 years, from the middle of the 8th century B.C. to beginning of the 7th century. That makes what we're about to read approximately 2,700 years old. The greatest external threat facing Judah at the time of this writing was the kingdom of Assyria. 
the dominant world power during Isaiah's prophetic ministry. That same world power of Assyria would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah, there in the middle of the Middle East, was surrounded by world powers. One of them, Assyria, Egypt, to the west. But the internal threat that Judah faced was worse. Because Judah was characterized by misplaced trust. Some in Judah trusted in empty religious ritual. Just doing the right things in the temple sacrifices and everything's going to be okay. Some trusted in false gods. The idols of the surrounding nations. And some trusted in military might, often promised by other nations like the up-and-coming world power Babylon. So I'm just giving you a little of the background here. Right before Isaiah 40 is Isaiah 39. It tells the story of how King Hezekiah misplaced his faith, which was typical of what Israel was doing during that time. After being healed by the Lord from a life-threatening illness in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah responds not by trusting the Lord for protection from Assyria, but instead by courting the help of Babylon against Assyria. So here, Hezekiah had, was on death's doorstep. The Lord heals him, and he responds by going to Babylon for help against Assyria. Isaiah 39, 5-7 tells what the punishment is going to be. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. You want to look for Babylon from help? Well, everything you see in your palace, even your own offspring, are going to be taken away to Babylon. And that was a prophecy of the exile to Babylon that's going to happen. The southern kingdom of Judah, again, who Isaiah prophesied to, would elude the clutches of Assyria through God's miraculous intervention. But celebration would be short-lived. Babylon would eventually destroy Jerusalem and exile the people of Israel. That's really bad news. And if you're reading through Isaiah and Isaiah 39, that's the bad news you hear before Isaiah 40. If you've been reading through, you heard about a tremendous rescue from Assyria. But then there's this bad news of coming exile to Babylon. It was with that proclamation of bad news that God gives this message of comfort to the people of Israel recorded in Isaiah 40. So I'm going to read Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11 now. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. 
Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving this word now nearly 2,700 years. And we thank you, Father, for the message of comfort there is to your people and to all who will trust in you. Lord, I pray, Father, that today we would listen to your word and respond in a way that is appropriate to your trustworthiness as you proclaim and exalt what the future holds, future for Israel in the coming of the Messiah, and then future for us as we look forward to the return of the Messiah. We pray, Father, for a comfort uh, really here for everyone here this morning, a comfort that is lasting, that is based on truth, that is the overflow of a right relationship with you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, we know that your son sent his spirit to be our comforter. And we pray that your spirit would use these words now to bring us a comfort that's lasting based on your truth, based on your son. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see four responses we need to have in response to God's announcement of his arrival so that we will have satisfying, enduring comfort. We'll see four responses we, ha- we ought to have to God's announcement of his, re- of his arrival so that we will have satisfying, enduring comfort. So we're going to look at these four responses. Now, I want to remind you that the original audience who received this promise was Israel, was the southern kingdom of Judah. The Israelites who responded in faith to this announcement were comforted as they trusted, as they trusted the Lord. They were comforted, but they also longed for the fulfillment of these promises. God's people today, the church, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, will similarly find comfort in these promises. There's comfort for you in these promises here today. There's comfort both in what you've already experienced. And some of this you're going to be able to look back and find comfort. But there's also comfort in what we are waiting to experience. And that really is what the Christian life is, between the already and the not yet, between what we have experienced and known in the Lord Jesus Christ and what we are looking forward to experiencing. So again, we'll see four responses we ought to have to God's announcement of his arrival so that we will have satisfying, enduring comfort. The first response we need to have is be comforted by the Lord's redemptive actions in verses 1 and 2. Be comforted by the Lord's redemptive actions. In verse 1, the command goes out to Israel to be comforted. He says it twice for emphasis. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Notice the evidence of God's continued covenant relationship despite Israel's 
faithlessness. The language is still here. We gloss over these words, my people and your God. But those words, those pronouns, my and your, are such a tremendous evidence of God's grace. That God is a God who makes relationships with people who don't deserve them. This is the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That God would be the God of Israel. It's affirmed in the new covenant under which we as Gentiles are saved this day. Jeremiah 31, 33 has a similar promise. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That message is for us. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. God's message of comfort was to Israel. But you will see that the church has reason to be comforted as well. The Lord gives three reasons that follow for Israel to be comforted. In verse 2, it says, These reasons were to be spoken kindly, speak kindly to Jerusalem, or speak to their heart. Not just kind words, but these are kind and convincing words. These are persuasive words. These are words that you use when you're giving reassurance to someone. These are words that a man would use to woo a woman, speaking kindly, convince them, persuade them that comfort is coming. And why is there a reason for this comfort? Well, Israel had a future to look forward to. The first reason is in the second line of verse 2. And call out to her that her warfare has ended. Warfare. Now, whether that's forced serving in the army or just simply hard, extended labor. The consequences that Israel faced for sin would be over. Their warfare has ended. The second reason we see in the third line of verse 2, that she has, uh, that her iniquity has been removed. Iniquity, another word for sin there, although focusing on the inward brokenness, how we're broken on the inside, wanting things that God hates, it says that their iniquity has been removed. You have the ESV, it says pardon. The root of the verb for removed or pardon is translated elsewhere as the Lord's pleasure. It's his pleasure after accepting a sacrifice, after atonement has been made. It's the pleasure that God has when the cause of our offense against him has been taken away. When the holy requirements of justice have been satisfied. And that's why they had reason to have comfort their warfare had ended. Their iniquity had been removed. And then the third reason is that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I find this phrase a little, a little interesting. Receiving twice the discipline they deserved. And th that, that's almost how you read this, right? They, they received double, like twice the punishment. Well, that's not really a reason for comfort, is it? We don't really say, be comforted, I'm grounding you an extra week. Right? You don't, you're not comforted because you've received twice the punishment. And there's good reason to think that really what, what Isaiah is saying here, what God is prophesying, is that she has received with the Lord's hand. And this is a picture of graciousness 
out of the Lord's hand. She has received double to pay for her sins. That he was graciously atoning for them. That his provision rose to the demands of the offense. That they received from the Lord's hand double, graciously. That's reason for comfort, right? Not according to what their sin deserved, but doubly from God's gracious hands. Now, the verb tense in all of these verses is written as completed so that Israel would have certainty about the future. Ended, removed, has received. It's called the prophetic perfect. Now, as we look at this reasons for it to be comforted, to have our hearts persuaded as we are spoken kindly to, we are reminded that all who come to God through Jesus Christ have the privilege of being his people. Not only Israel. The promises in Revelation 21 verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. By God's grace, the church is his people. And we can be comforted here by these promises. If you belong to Jesus Christ, be comforted by God's redemptive actions. The hard years of sin's dominion are done. Your slavery to sin, your warfare against him have ended. You have been set free. Your sins have been removed. Your iniquity has been pardoned if your faith is in Jesus Christ alone. The Father smiles at the acceptance of his sacrifice of his son on your behalf. All who come through faith to him are welcome worshipers. Instead of God having a clenched fist in anger ready to strike at rebels, his clenched fist has been opened. His fist has been replaced with an open hand. He was not responded to your sin as you deserved, but with a double portion of grace. These blessings are yours if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. In these truths is where lasting comfort resides. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. This is what we celebrate and remember at Christmas, so that you can be comforted. Lasting comfort, not circumstantial comfort, not holiday decoration comfort but true comfort. But if you are apart from him, if you are not in Jesus Christ, your hard labor endures. You are stained by your sin. And you will eternally be receiving from the Lord's hand what your sin deserves. That's what hell is. Eternally receiving from his hand. Will you be comforted in Jesus Christ? If you don't know him, will you be comforted in him? Will he, will you become his people? Will you go to him and say, that savior, I need him. I need his sacrifice. I need grace from the Lord. There is lasting comfort in God's redemptive actions. The first announcement here, we see verses one and two is the message of comfort. The second announcement is a voice of expectancy. 
It's a message of expectancy. That brings us to our second response. Prepare for the Lord's certain arrival. Prepare for the Lord's certain arrival. The first is be comforted by the Lord's redemptive actions. The second response we need to have is prepare for the Lord's certain arrival. Verse 3 begins, a voice is calling. And the point in this text, and really we'll, we'll see this in, in each of these stanzas. It's a little difficult to know who the voice is, but that's not the point. The point is the message. A voice is calling. And the voice is calling that Yahweh, God of Israel, is coming. The picture contained in verses in lines 2 and 3 of verse 3 is preparing the way for a visiting king. It says, clear the way for the Lord, Yahweh, in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You could imagine uh, them getting ready for the visit of a foreign king, a dignitary, or maybe a returning conquering king. You can imagine if they wanted to make walnut ready for a presidential cavalcade. We'd be picking up trash. Probably if you've driven down Walnut, we'd be clearing out the unsightly RVs. I recently saw at the California Science Center a picture, uh, a video of the Endeavor coming to the California Science Center. If you, that, that, that uh, space shuttle's huge. Even more impressive, though, is the external tank, which is also at the California Science Center. Its diameter is 27 feet. Its length is 154 feet. And, if, and as you watch, as they bring down this giant tank, that's the big orange tank that the space shuttle is launched with, uh, with the rockets on the side, that giant tank, as they bring it down the streets, getting it to the California Science Center, they have to make sure that everything is cleared away, that the path is completely clear. But we see something even more dramatic when Yahweh is pictured as coming to Israel. We see in verse 4, Let every valley be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain. And the rugged terrain a broad valley. It takes a cataclysmic upheaval to be appropriate to the majesty of God when he comes. Streets don't need to be cleared for God's arrival. Mountains need to be flattened. The picture continues in verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The picture here is of God descending from Mount Sinai where Israel received the law, where he revealed himself in thunder and lightning. And of God, kind of you can imagine with his chariots and war horses, traveling through the desert, going through the desert of Saudi Arabia to make himself known to his people. Israel was to prepare for the appearance of Yahweh's glory, not just in blinding brightness of glory, but God's glory expressed in actions, God's glory in the display of his attributes, and making himself known on earth as he is in heaven, of bringing a full portrayal of himself as the angels see God, and they have to cover up their eyes, that kind of revelation of himself. The glory of the invisible and too holy to be beholden God would be seen, it says in the second half of verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now we don't exactly know, Isaiah doesn't say how it's going to be manifested. Would it be in a pillar of cloud and fire coming like led Israel in the wilderness? Would it be like lightning and thunder at Sinai? 
Would it be like when the Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the temple and the cloud filled it so that the priest couldn't stand and minister because of the cloud? The glory of the Lord filled the house. That's from 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. We know now how his glory is revealed. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of Christ. John 12, verse 45. Jesus said, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. What profound words of Jesus' deity. If you see Jesus, you have seen God the Father. His glory is the glory of God the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. This is where we see God's glory. This is in whom we see God's glory. Hebrews 1.3 says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, an exact representation of his nature. Verse 5 describes that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. In the middle of verse 5, all flesh will see it together. All flesh refers to all humans, not just Israel, but all humanity will see the glory of God. It looked forward to the revelation of the future glory of God, not the past revelation when he was here on earth, but the future revelation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That is when all flesh will see it together, when Jesus Christ returns. At the end of verse 5, the Lord guarantees this manifestation of his coming glory. He guarantees that Israel's going to see it, that all flesh is going to see it in verse 5. And he says, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This message, what I just have said, is accurate and it is decided. The Lord is going to do this. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. All flesh will see the glory of Jesus Christ. We know that God's glory is coming to this earth because God said it. God made his glory known when God the Son became a man. God made his glory known when the perfect Son of Man was crucified. When there we saw God's grace and his mercy and his wrath and his justice all exalted at the same time on the cross. God made his glory known when Jesus Christ was exalted in heaven and publicly given that name, Lord. God will make his glory known when God the Son returns to earth in glory. John the Baptist knew that God's glory was coming. So he called on people to, be, to repent so they would be ready for the glory of the Lord to reveal. Matthew 3, 3. Matthew says this about John the Baptist. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist wanted the people to be ready. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Make the path straight. Get ready for glory. All flesh will see it. And I have to ask you today, are you ready for that glory to be revealed? 
Have you prepared by repenting, by turning away from sin, by hoping in the only one who is able to save? Are you ready for that glory to be revealed? That glory is dreadful to rebels, but to those who place their hope in Jesus Christ, it is their refuge. That cloud of glory is their hiding place. Prepare for that glory by trusting in Christ alone. Now, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, there is nothing more comforting than the arrival of his glory. See, because for us, for whom the gospel, we've been liberated. We've been liberated from thinking of the law as something that was only opposed to us and only condemning us. We now look at his law, his commands, and we love them. We love them and we are eager to obey them and we are eager for Christ to return in his glory. We are like those who lined up when Jesus was going into Jerusalem. We are on the parade route of Jesus Christ as he comes back. And we are going to say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we are waiting for his glory to come. Because we, by God's grace, are faithful. We are like the servant who has been eagerly waiting for their master to return. In Luke 12, verses 35 to 38, you can imagine that servant sitting there at the, at the window, waiting till the middle of the night for the master to come back. And that's us. We're doing, by God's grace, what the master wants. And so we know that that path is ready. Whatever stood between us and God has been taken away in Jesus Christ. And now we're just waiting for our master's return. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jesus is coming in his glory. You can hope in this enduring word. That leads us to our third response, which is hope in the Lord's enduring word. First, we need to be comforted by the Lord's redemptive actions. Second, we need to prepare for the Lord's certain arrival. Third, we need to hope in the Lord's enduring word. In verse 6, a voice says, call out. And another voice answered, what shall I call it? It's difficult to know who these voices are. Perhaps the second one there is, is the prophet Isaiah. But with the previous stanzas, the focus here is on whose, who, whose voices are these. It's that God is speaking and that he has a message. What is essential is that God's truth about his truth is going to be communicated to his people. And that's what's the focus here in verses 6 through 8, is God's truth about his truth. The second half of verse 6, it says, All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Humans are pictured like grass that withers quickly, especially, especially in the Middle Eastern heat. Uh, ben Liao recently went to Israel, and he attested to how our climate here is similar to that of Israel. Well, I have patches in my backyard grass that attest to this truth. I know what uh, wind in Israel does quickly, like after one day of sprinkler being off. It's interesting here where it says, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. That loveliness there, 
is the word kesed, which you know is God's covenant-keeping love. Man's covenant-keeping love is not like God's. Man's faithfulness is not steadfast. And I think that that's the idea here. Where it says loveliness is it's his faithfulness. Man's faithfulness is like the flower of the field. Man's stability, his steadfastness is like the flower of the field. It quickly fades. Whether it's man's frail flesh or his fickle nature, man is gone quickly. Verse 7 continues. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. God is the one who's in charge of life and death. He blows and the grass withers. God has set your egg timer. He's only given so many minutes to you. Verse 8 reveals the reason why the Lord wants to remind us of the briefness of life. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We are vacillating. Our flesh is feeble. Our breath is fleeting. Like when we go outside on a cold night, we can just barely see it. Gone in an instant. But not the word of God. The word of God is unbreakable. God keeps his promise. Our, our, our web history, you know, if you were to look and say, what did I look at in this past year? Shows us how fickle life is. This year's must-buy gifts will soon be sold at garage sales. Today's shocking news will quickly be forgotten in next year's deluge of shocking news. We'll soon forget the many famous people who died in 2018. Sports scores that seem so important as you check them moment by moment by moment will turn into an empty stat in future years. Fashions fade, and the hottest movies someday, 20 years from now, you look back and it'll look so childish. Kings will rise and fall. This age will roll over, and if Jesus tarries, another will take its place. But God's word is not a fad, and it's not a passing trend. God is trustworthy, not transitory. God is faithful, not fickle. God is powerful, not impotent. And his word stands forever. The book of Isaiah is really all about the trustworthiness of the one true God. Kings are not trustworthy, although Israel looked to kings again and again. Other gods are not trustworthy. Ideologies are not trustworthy. God breathes and all that is green today is withered and crunchy beneath your feet tomorrow. Yahweh alone is trustworthy. God the Son came the first time, born of a virgin, because God is trustworthy. Because the word of our God stands forever. And God, the Son, will come again to reign forever because the word of our God stands forever. We are between Advents, between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ because the word of our God stands forever. So hold on to that enduring word. Frail 
flesh and feeble philosophies will not overcome it. God's word endures. So hold on to it. It doesn't matter what philosophers say. It doesn't matter what professors say. I read commentaries again and again that tell how the previous generation's thoughts about how God's word is not true. How they keep changing. God's word endures forever. It is perfect. Because his enduring word is steadfast and it doesn't fail. Because his word endures, we can know that he will reign. And that brings us to our fourth response. So first, we saw that we need to be comforted by the Lord's redemptive actions. We need to prepare for the Lord's certain arrival. We need to hope in the Lord's enduring word. And fourth, we need to rejoice in the Lord's victorious reign. We need to rejoice in the Lord's victorious reign. The fourth voice that goes out in verses 9 through 11 is triumphant. It says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Zion, Jerusalem, is portrayed as a woman here commanded to raise a victorious cry from a high mountain so that all can hear. Jerusalem is this bearer of good news called to lift up her voice mightily. It says, without fear, without fear that what she's about to announce is not going to come to pass because convinced that unlike everything that humans are, God's word endures forever. Her message begins with the same word three times and sadly, the New American Standard misses it. And so you see in verse 10, it says, behold. And in verse 10, the second half, behold. Well, guess what the first word of, so if you go to the end of verse 9, it says, here is your God. And if you're you're in ESV, you see behold there. But in NASB, it says, here is your God. And that word here is behold. It says, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Behold, look, listen, behold. The Lord, uh, let's see it, beginning of, uh, at the end of verse 9, behold. And what a climactic moment here. Behold your God. And remember that the glory the Lord is predicted to come at the end of verse 5. And now he comes in the beginning at the end of verse 9 as the enduring word predicted. He's arrived. Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden where God's presence was in Genesis 3. But now God enters into the wilderness to bring his presence to man. And he says, behold your God. The first half of verse 10 is our second behold. There's going to be three of them. The first one is the end of verse 9. The second behold is at the beginning of verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might with his arm ruling for him. The Lord God, and you notice the word God there is in capital letters. God is the name of God. Yahweh, almost always translated Lord, but the translators had a problem here. It sounds weird to say, but the Lord, Lord. So they changed that second Lord to God, but it means Adonai Yahweh, Master Lord, Master Yahweh, Sovereign Yahweh. 
It's God coming in his strength. We see that come with might with his arm ruling for him. Coming to reign. He's flexing his muscles. His sleeve is rolled up. This is the return of the conquering king coming from battle. The victory won. Oh, just tremendous to imagine that. And, and, and of course, we can't even picture this, right? We don't, we don't know what Jesus, I mean, if we were to imagine anything, it's Jesus in his glory. As transfigured or as seen in Revelation 1. Or maybe at his return in Revelation 19. Powerful vision of Jesus returning. Second half of verse 10 is our second behold. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Lord Yahweh is victorious in his return. He's bringing his reward with him. The proof of his victory, his spoils. And it says that his recompense, the the, the wages he's earned, are before him. And perhaps the picture here is us, his people. The reward of his victory, marching before our exultant king at his return. Us who've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, coming to reign with him as he takes his throne. Behold our God. In verse 10, we see the Lord God as sovereign. In verse 11, such a a quick switch here. We see him as shepherd. Verse 11 says, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Though he is mighty, though his arm is outstretched and his muscles flexed, he is gentle with his flock. He tends them. He cares for them. The ruling arm of verse 10 cradles lambs in verse 11 holding them close to his bosom. This is not the kind of king that the world can imagine. This is not the kind of God that the world imagines. They will neuter him and turn him just into a shepherd. But they can't imagine this sovereign shepherd. But that's exactly what we see here. With the individualized attention of a good shepherd, he gently leads those with young. The behold our God at the end of verse 9 prepares us for this vision of him in verses 10 and 11. So rejoice in the victorious reign of your Lord, of our kind king, of the sovereign shepherd. His arm is strong enough to subdue rebel hearts, to make us his joyous subjects, to make us those who delight to worship at his feet. To look at his return and say, come Lord Jesus, that's my sovereign shepherd. Oh, that's where the heart of faith cries out. I'm not afraid of his fist anymore. Yet his hand has been opened graciously to me with double. His arm is strong enough to subdue rebel hearts and yet gentle enough to carry the weak. To care for each of his sheep. To restore our souls. To lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What mercy the Father has shown us that we as Gentiles. I mean, we read this and this is a promise to Israel here. 
that we as Gentiles should know God the Son is our shepherd. This is what Jesus said would happen in John 10, 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. This is not just Israel's king here. This is our king. So rejoice in your God. Rejoice in your sovereign. Rejoice in your shepherd. But then join in raising this same proclaiming voice. This holiday season, proclaim, behold your God. Not only God is pictured humbly at a nativity scene, not only in his humility at the cross, but behold, Jesus, God the Son, become man, the sovereign shepherd king. We are the reward of his efforts, his recompense, the ones purchased with his own blood. We are the sheep of his pasture, the sheep carried in his conquering arm. So will you who have received this blessing of his grace, will you go to those who are yet to be found of his fold? There are those out there, right? There are more to be gathered in of his sheep. We can't be the only ones celebrating in this great king this Christmas. Raise your voice like is said in verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain. Be the bearer of good news. Lift your voice mightily without fear. Because our king is coming. Will you be that bearer of good news this season? Will you cry out, behold your God? We started by talking about the many ways people try to find comfort in this holiday season. Well, there is reason for true comfort here. The Lord God has spoken. He has given us his enduring word. We have seen the arrival both at that first coming and then we are waiting for his arrival at the second coming. We know him as our sovereign shepherd. We love his victorious reign and his tender care. We have participated. We have been the participants. The ones who have received his redemptive actions. For whom our toil has ended. And our iniquity has been pardoned. We have received graciously from his hand. There is reason for lasting comfort in our great God. Let's pray. Now, Father, I thank you that you have spoken, and that's really what comes out in this passage again and again. It is that you want your word to be known. There's all these voices, a voice crying out, the voice of your word, the voice of Jerusalem announcing the arrival of the king. And Father, we come here today hearing your word. But Lord, and our hearts are aware that there are those here this morning, and definitely on the other side of these walls, who are not yet ready for the arrival of your son in glory. 
And we do pray that you would be preparing in their hearts, preparing the way for the arrival of your son. Lord, we pray that your glory would be a source of hope and a place of refuge rather than something only to be afraid of. Lord, and that's only true if we come to Jesus Christ, is if we make peace with the returning King. Lord, I pray, Father, for those who don't know you, that you would be using this, 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 these imperfect words. Lord, may your spirit who brings comfort, comfort bring comfort to those who are grieved over their sinfulness. And may he bring them life so that they would put their faith in your son. Father, Lord, there is such reason for hope here. We have looked back at the cross and the redemptive actions you've taken, and we look forward to the future advent of Jesus Christ. We are those who cry out, Hosanna. We are those who long for Christ to return. Oh, Father, help us to be faithful. Lord, I pray that you would help us to persevere in faith. And that we would not put our trust in any other thing. The book of Isaiah is all about where we put our trust. And help us to put our trust in you only, God. To fix our eyes on your glory as revealed in your Son. May we submit to his reign, but also submit to his kind shepherding. Lord, we thank you for your attentiveness. We thank you, Father, for how your Son the consolation of Israel, the comforting of Israel, sent his comforter, the spirit, into our hearts. Lord, this, this, these, these 11 verses are a treasure trove. There's so much for our hearts here. And I pray, Father, that you'd be applying it where, where, where needed. I do pray that you would help us to be vocal and bold, Lord. In this holiday season, I know many of us will see family, some of whom don't know you. Father, there's, there's opportunity to speak about that Christ in the manger, but who that Christ is now. So help us to be bold uh, in announcing the goodness of our shepherd, Sovereign. Thank you for this time in your word, for this time to remember that Jesus came, but he's also coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.